0: Well, in the Bible, Jesus tells a story one day to his disciples. It's a parable. And the story is about a farmer who's sowing seeds. And he goes along and he throws the seeds onto the field and they fall in different places. And there's varying results. Some grows up well, some doesn't grow up well. And a little later on, of course, he tells his disciples, the story is not really about a farmer and about seed. It's actually about God And the way that he's sowing his word in human hearts. And Jesus continues and he explains what's going on in Luke chapter 8 verses 11 to 15. And in that place Jesus says this. He says, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. So that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Well, Christ City, we're going to explore Psalm 71 this morning. And the reason I, I looked at Jesus' parables because I think what Psalm 71 is in a lot of ways is, is a, a peek into the inner life of that good and honest heart that receives the word of God, and over the course of their life, with patience bears fruit. This is a psalm written by somebody at the end of their life who's gone through a lot of suffering, and yet patiently and enduringly produces this fruit. And it's my prayer this morning that we would be challenged by this text, and I, I pray that the challenge is this, that God would shake us out of a casual and naive faith that I think I often at least have that trusts God only so much as my circumstances are good. But that I would be challenged from that to come to know the security of life with God as our refuge and the riches of praising God in our suffering as human beings and the confidence of ultimate deliverance that we have with this God as our refuge. So those are our three points. I'll say them again. Number one, the security of life with God as our refuge. Number two, the riches of praising God in our suffering. Number three, the confidence of ultimate deliverance. If you're taking notes, just refuge, praise, and confidence. It's easier than running out all the things I just said. So we're going to jump in and we're going to look at this and see the way that this person uh, was this good sort of receptive heart that received the word of God. And we're going to look first at this point about God being our refuge in verses one to four. I'll read them again. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and the cruel man. Now as we come to Psalm 71, unlike some of the Psalms that we've come to earlier in our series in the Psalms this summer, it doesn't have a superscription. And that means that we don't have those little words after Psalm 71 written by so and so in this particular circumstance. So we don't have the situation that this is coming from right there in this Psalm. But that being said, the Psalm itself gives us some clues about what's going on that led to the writing of the Psalm. And I think the best clues that summarize what's going on are verses 9 to 11. So look at those with me. In verses 9 to 11, the psalmist says, Do not cast me off in time of old age. He's old. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. He's weak. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life, they consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. For there is none Deliver him. I think the situation is that the psalmist is old and weak, and he's got these enemies that are kind of gathering around like the pride of hyenas. Are they called the pride? Uh, 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 not, it's not a flock. Uh, it's, but the hyenas are gathering around and they're circling their prey. They're looking for an opportunity to destroy him. And in this situation, look what the psalmist says in verses one and three. In you. Oh Lord, not in anything else. In you, O oh Lord, do I take refuge. Be to me a rock of refuge. I love this. To which I may continually come. Continually coming to this rock is my refuge. Christ City, do you know what a refuge is? A refuge is the thing that we hope and trust in for deliverance. A refuge is a thing that we turn to for comfort, for shelter, for safety, in the midst of the suffering that we face inevitably here in this world, in our lives. Because the thing is, we don't live in ancient times, but we all suffer. Amen? Amen. And if you haven't suffered, don't you worry. You will not be left out. The suffering will come. We know what it means to need a refuge. We need a refuge. In my own life, as I was thinking about this message, I thought of the time and the way that that as I grew up being a, a perceptive kid and wouldn't you know it, also a worrier, how there's lots of stories that my parents tell of the ways that I saw what was going on in the family and I worried about those things. And I remember distinctly worrying about one thing in particular quite a lot. M- my dad was a framer. He worked really hard in a physical job, and he struggled to make ends meet. And I'd watch him come home from work late at night, and he'd go and, he- and he'd head straight to a hot bath to try and just deal with his aching bones. And then he'd come from the hot bath, and he'd go and he'd ice his back. And and he was always in—he and he didn't complain. He's a very, very tough man. But, but he was in this situation of-, of suffering, trying to figure out how to put enough bread on the table for me— my siblings, and my family. And I began strategizing already when I was a young man. I will not go through this suffering. I'm going to be more financially secure. I'm going to take control of my present situation starting now and building margin into my life so I don't ever have to go through that. And I begin going to, to these things and control and comfort and security to try to find my refuge in those things. We all do this. There's nothing more human for you and I than to feel vulnerable as a human being. And in that vulnerability to look for a refuge. We look for refuges all the time, both internally and externally. Let me tell you about a couple of them that you might be familiar with. Some of the external refugees we run to are comfort, right? The psalmist says he continually goes to God, his rock of refuge. But a lot of us continually go to the refrigerator, right? Or continually go maybe to a substance, to the weed shop down the road. Continually go to the liquor store, right? Looking for some form of comfort in our suffering. It's hard, man. (laughs) I got to find a way to, to, to find a refuge in the midst of this difficulty. Some of us run to the external comfort of, of trying to control the situations of my life. If I can secure safety in various ways for myself and my family and security, I'm going to be good. Some of us run to the refuge of relationships. You know what? If, that, if this romantic relationship can be at the center of my life, is this friendship over here, this family member over here, then I will be secure. I'm going to be okay. Okay. Some of us run to work and success or family, delighting in the family, gathering them around, planning the next purchase. Some of us go to the internet, right? Suffering comes and it's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start researching my next purchase, right? And we go to find comfort just by heading to the internet, planning the next vacation or planning the next purchase in our lives. That's where we're running for comfort. That's where we're running for refuge. We take refuge externally. We also do it internally. Some of you, like myself, can take refuge in your anger, in your bitterness. Right? And, and when you're suffering, the thing that gives you hope are thoughts of revenge. Maybe you wouldn't act on them. Maybe you would. Maybe you just like to go there inwardly to hang on to that. You know what? Some of us even go to our sadness in our suffering. And in a strange sort of way, our sadness is something we return to again and again. It just kind of feels good to sit in it, just to stay there. Some of us work more positively. It's still inward, and it's maybe a bit more positive, but it's it's still not the, the refuge that this psalm speaks of. And we try to cultivate an inner wholeness and an inner peace, right? We just work so hard for the inner state of Zen. And if I'm there, right, I'll be okay. I'll be secure, This wholeness within is the thing that I take refuge in. We all take refuge. But Christ said, the wrong refuge is going to leave you disappointed and broken. I think it's funny the way that you can look at people as they get older, and you can see literally on their faces the refuges that they've taken for themselves. You can see it in, in the wrinkles on their faces and their smiles and their joy. Or the frowns, the bitterness, the the marks of of a life lived hard. See, the wrong refuge will leave you empty and disappointed, but the right one is joy in the midst of sorrow. Look at verses 5 to 6. Someone says, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, for my youth. Upon you, I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Isn't that beautiful? The image here is just so beautiful. It's almost too intimate to to want to talk about. When I I think back to the childbirth of my children and the moment when the, the nurse hands me the scissors, and I cut the umbilical cord for Pepper or for Aryan and bring them into my arms. And this vulnerable thing is entrusted to my care. It's crazy. I still remember when Aryan was born and, and the wonder and then also the shock of, wait a second, you're sending us home? Like, I don't think we're qualified to care for this little living being. You know, but, it, but this is the, the image of, of God being the one. From before birth and then through birth, who takes us in our vulnerability and holds us in his arms. Upon him we lean. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth, verse 6. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. It's beautiful. Our whole life sustained and held in the hands of this God. Christity, what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? Is your refuge going to be like this God for you? Your bank account won't secure your happiness. We know that. It can't ensure that you stay healthy and strong. It can't keep your family intact. As life goes on, no matter how hard you try to keep control, you won't you can't and the more you try you'll find that you hurt those around you your health isn't always going to be good it's going to fail you your loved ones that you lean on and you put all your hope and trust in for your refuge they will let you down and one day they will die where where are you looking for a refuge Christy, when the righteous and good God of the Bible is your refuge, you are secure. You can praise continually like the psalmist. You can go through the difficulties of life and still be full of praise, even in the midst of your suffering. I want to show you this in our next point, which is about praise and the way this psalm is saturated with with both praise and praise. And suffering. There's this incredible juxtaposition. If you saw it when we read it, suffering and praise, not not like one over here and then and then it moves toward praise, but they're both simultaneously intertwined and existing together in this remarkable way in this psalm. Look at verses 12 to 21. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually. I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. Of your deeds of salvation all the day. For the number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. See, as the psalmist prays for deliverance, I want you to see this. He also prays in verse 13, may my accusers be put to shame. It's interesting, isn't it? In verse one, when he, when he confessed that God is his refuge. He prayed something else there too. He said, let me never be put to shame. Right? So let me never be put to shame. Let my accusers be put to shame. What's going on here? What's this talk of shame about? What the psalmist is talking about is the way that we are put to shame When the thing that we trust in fails us. We're put to shame when the thing that we trust in fails us. And the psalmist over here on the one hand has placed all of his hope and all of his trust in God. And over here, his accusers have put all of their hope and all of their trust in attacking the psalmist. Right? And he wants to be vindicated. He wants to not be put to shame for the way he's trusted and hoped in God. It's kind of like this. Um, when I used to work in construction, I don't know if you guys know this, I am a journeyman carpenter. I have a background in construction. And when I used to, to do construction, um, we did not follow WCB protocols very much at all, if I'm honest. And, uh, and one or two times, maybe a lot more than that, we would build scaffolds. And our scaffolds that we would build, you know, you'd be in a situation where you're maybe three stories up and you construct a scaffold and you'd have to kind of crawl out of a window that did not have a window in it yet and then onto this board that would be three stories up. And you had to entrust the entirety of your life to this board and to this scaffold because there's nothing to hold on to, right? And, and in my time working for the company that I worked for, i have seen a couple of the scaffolds that have been built by my coworkers collapse and people fall. And so you can be sure that I would never entrust myself to a scaffold. This tells you a bit more about my control problem again, actually. Unless I had gone and rebuilt the thing, and I, I like, count the nails, and I add more, and then I, I put other things, other supports under them to make sure that it is okay, and it's not going to let me down. You see, the psalmist, he's built the entire edifice of his life on one thing. All of it. He stepped out the window onto the one board, onto the scaffold of God as his refuge. And at the end of his life, his accusers are mocking the scaffold. They're saying, look, it's pretty rickety, man, and it's going to fall. It's going to fall. And the psalmist is crying out, God, don't put me to shame. Put Put them to shame. Let their rotten scaffolds be seen for what they are, and let it all fall to the ground so that you are left alone glorified as the God who is good and who is our refuge. You see, Christ City, the bold claim of the Bible is that there is only one refuge in this world that will not let you down. There's one. It's the God of the Bible. The Bible teaches that trusting in him, it's not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's hope and trust that's based on the revealed character of this God that we're trusting in, that we can see in actual acts in human history. Let me say that again. It's not wishful thinking. It's hope and trust that's based on the revealed character of God that is seen in actual acts in human history. This is what the psalmist is talking about, right? I'll show you what he's talking about this. He says it in verses 15 to 16. He says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, things that God has actually done, of your deeds of salvation, acts of salvation that God has actually done. For their number is past my knowledge. There's so many of God's good and righteous acts in human history that he's lost count. He can't number them. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone, God alone, worthy of being a refuge. See, as he's suffering, the basis of the psalmist's present trust in God as his refuge is looking backward to God's acts of salvation. And he was an Israelite. For him, The quintessential moment of salvation was when God rescued this enslaved people from Egypt. The Bible says that he heard their cries and he had compassion on them. He saw the injustice that they face. And in his love and in his mercy, he took this people that were enslaved in this abusive, terribly unjust situation, and he removed them from it. He rescued them and he brought them into this land that he would promised them. And he began to work with them, cultivating in them a new sort of people in this world that didn't try to figure out life on their own. They didn't try to make life just work out and find flourishing by, by their own invention, but that lived under the law of God, teaching them how to live what's really good and beautiful and true, living in relationship with him. And the psalmist looked back on these acts, and he was thankful this man, based on that stuff, I can trust God right now. All of his promises that he's made to us, he will fulfill them because I can see in the past how he's already begun doing this work and how he saved us in real human history. The psalmist remembers God's past actions, and because of that, trust in God as his refuge in the present. In Christ's city, in our suffering, we need to learn from this psalm, and we need to do the same thing. I know a lot of you are suffering right now. I know a lot of you, like myself, get lost in the suffering that you're in. Right? You lose perspective in it. And you, you, you spin. I don't know what your mind does, but my mind starts to go in circles in suffering. What we need to do is get our mind out of those circles and look back and remember God's acts of salvation. But not just Egypt. My ancestors weren't there. But Jesus When all around us is crumbling, we need to look back to a God who has seen our suffering as human beings because of our sin and has had compassion on us. And he's loved us. That he's acted righteously in human history to save us. This God most high, he wasn't too proud and arrogant as God Not to come down, but that he took on human form. He became human in the person of Jesus. That he identified with you and I in our weakness, in our suffering, in our pain. That he then went to the cross and he died the death that you and I deserve because we all live as rebels before this great God who's over all. Jesus took the place that we deserve. He satisfied the justice of God that we couldn't. This Jesus then was raised to life and with his resurrection, we too who trust in him are given the hope of a resurrection that we'll share with him. This Jesus ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and he poured out his Holy Spirit so that Christ said he get this. Right now in your suffering, when you're trusting in Jesus, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. God himself has come. To be with you in your suffering. To be close to you. To be shaping you, molding you, filling you with the life of Jesus. Drawing you to the day when he will return and all will be well. And all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And there's hope for us. Because of all of this that he's done in Jesus, there's a promise that you and I need to hold on to. And it's this, God does not waste the tears of his children. He's not wasting your tears. He's using them for the good purposes that he desires for you. Romans 8, 28 to 29 say this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Is your refuge like that? For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, trusting in God as a refuge in our present suffering is not wishful thinking because of God's actions and salvation for us in Jesus Christ. We have every reason to trust him in the present. You know, as a psalmist remembers what God has done, and takes courage in the moment. He's full of praise. gonna read some of these verses again, 14 to 18. He says, but I will hope continually and I will praise you. Not just I will praise you. I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation. All the day I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to share them around. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, of yours alone. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me. And I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. See that? He's praying to God in his suffering, not for more money, not for more health, not for more comfort, not for promotion at work. In his suffering, he's praying for more opportunities to talk about God's goodness and his righteous acts and to praise him to other people man, we need to learn from this. I need to learn from this so much. I'm rebuked by this psalm. I'm just rebuked by it. Because when I am in suffering, I'm ashamed to say, and those of you that are close to me, you probably have noticed a trend. I've been going through some hard things the last little while, and in doing that, I'm quick to complain about them. I'm just quick to talk about them. I'm quick to, to complain and to, to be unthankful. What I want to do is I want to grow in this. I want us as a church to grow in this, that in our suffering, we would be this incredible witness, to the power and the goodness of God as we praise him in the midst of suffering. You know what's striking about Christian faith? It's not that we are super happy when things go well all the time. That's what everybody does. It's that we have joy in the midst of sorrow. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, he said that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's what's remarkable about Christian faith. I have a couple of friends that that come to my mind immediately when I start talking about sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Um, In the last couple of years, actually in the last calendar year, two of my close friends from seminary have lost children. And um, in, in various tragic and horrible situations. But these friends, Christy, they are so full of faith. <laughs> I have another friend right now. Their, their daughter is in stage cancer. She's, I think, 11 years old. And, and these people, they rejoice in God as their refuge. They trust him. They love him. They take every opportunity, certainly to pray, to mourn, to grieve, to weep, but also to praise God and rejoice in him. It is striking. It is striking. When you see Christians praising God in their suffering, it's a miracle. A miracle that reveals the truth and the power of our salvation. Just like the psalmist here, who's old, he's weak, enemies are circling around, and yet he's full of this praise of God. This is a powerful tool for the glory of God in our city. It's evangelistic to be thankful, to be full of praise for him. So we've considered the blessing of God as our refuge. We've looked at the riches of praising him in suffering. And now I want you to look with me at our last point, the confidence of ultimate Deliverance. And we're going to look at verses 19 to 24. Your righteousness, O God, it reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. So the psalmist has this great confident hope, but it's not naive and it's not simplistic. He says in the verses that we just read, um, you will revive me again. He says, God has redeemed me. He says, my enemies and not me have been put to shame. And yet when we think about the whole psalm, remember the situation he talked about in verses 1 to 3, right? In verses, uh, sorry, 9 to 12. He's old, he's weak, his enemies are all around him. And I don't think that that situation is suddenly now resolved at the end of the psalm. I don't think in the space of him writing these things down, everything is fixed and back to normal. So what are these verses doing? I think these statements at the end of the psalm are confident assertions of God's future actions. It's confident hope that God has delivered and will deliver finally. So not only does the psalmist remember God's past actions and then trust in God in his refuge as his pr- in the present, he also has his confidence that God will finally deliver him. In Christ city I want you to know that you and I can have the same confidence. We can have the confidence with the psalmist, not just in the past, not just in the present, but that in the future, God will one day finally deliver us. We actually have far more reason to have confidence than the psalmist. So much more reason. The psalmist knew God's righteous character. He saw it. The psalmist didn't know that God Most High would become a human being and be born and come to us in the person of Jesus. He didn't know the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. But we can trust God's final deliverance because we know his character that's been revealed to us in Jesus. Look at Romans 8, and this time at verses 31 to 32. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's saying, because of Jesus, God has shown us that he's 100% in when it comes to our salvation. He's not holding back. He's not partway committed. Sort of like this. I got a silly illustration for you. If you and I were going to go to Australia and I said, hey, I promise I will pay for your trip. I'll pay for your trip to Australia. Maybe you've had people make promises to you in the past. Like, I don't know, Brent, you know you're a nice guy, but you know you overextend yourself and you're going to pull back. And it's not going to happen. You know when you know that it actually would be true? You know when you know that you could start putting your, your trust that I would deliver on my promise? It's so when I bought your plane ticket. So when I bought your plane ticket, when I paid the most expensive part of the trip, right? Because probably with COVID right now, Australian flights are maybe five grand. I have no idea. I'm just going to throw a big number out there. Um, maybe way less, but uh, we're, we're going to leave the big number out there, right? And if, and if I've paid the big number, right, do you need to worry that I'm not going to buy you your lunch in Sydney? No, I'm invested. In a similar way, Paul is saying God will surely and graciously bring us every blessing because he already has shown his commitment to us by giving us the most precious thing of all, his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can be triumphantly confident that Revelation 21 verses 3 to 4 will one day be our reality. Look at them with me. God will deliver us. Christy, we have so much to praise God for. And yet we still have to live in the present. We still have to live here. Right? We're still faced with the things that you were faced with when you walked in this morning. They're still in front of you filling your mind. So the question is, given all of this stuff that we looked at in Scripture, how then do we live with endurance right now? I want to conclude by just looking at a couple of things practically, that we can do to grow an endurance in the presence. First, how can we endure well? Then the first step is that we need to get the DNA of the gospel into our bones. We need to get the DNA of the gospel into our bones. And what I mean by that is this. I think sometimes we want to be saved. We want salvation. We want a refuge with God to look like microwave popcorn, right? Super quick and delicious with every bite. Right? We, 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 want, we want our salvation to be like that. And we kind of think of our, our life with God like that. And when it doesn't happen that way, we get kind of upset about it. Right? We don't have the picture of the gospel, the DNA of the gospel in our bones. Because what's the DNA of the gospel? In the gospel, the cross of Jesus came before his glorification to the right hand of the Father. In the gospel, suffering came before eternal glory. And it's this is teaching, by the way, that was so offensive to all those around Jesus. So it got Peter so upset at him, right? When Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, oh, you're the Christ. And he's like, yes, you're right. And the Son of Man must suffer. He must be betrayed. He must be murdered. He must die on a cross. And the third day rise again. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, there's no way. <laughs> you got the gospel wrong, Jesus. That whole suffering bit, you just back up the train a little bit. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't get it. You don't get it, Peter. You don't get it. The DNA of the gospel is the cross before glory. In Christ City, it's only when we realize that that Jesus is a suffering Savior, and and we hold on to that, not in theory, but personally, that we begin to be strengthened by it. That he's a suffering savior who suffered for me. When our eyes are opened, right? We're not just opposing the whole idea of suffering, but we see, no, the suffering of Jesus was necessary. My sin demanded it. My rebellion against this God, my insistence that God, I want to be king of my life and figure out life my own way. It's hurt so many other people around me and hurt me continually and is sinning against God. God, I realize now that that required justice and that Jesus was the one who entered into human history to take that justice of God upon himself, to die on a cross in my place. Not reluctantly, joyfully and willingly in love, laying his life down for me. For God so loved me that he gave his only son. Christ City, if you don't know that gospel personally and intimately in your heart, you won't have endurance and suffering. But if you know it intimately and personally, you'll begin to have strength in suffering because in your suffering, you'll know that God loves you. You'll look at Jesus and you will worship. You'll be compelled by his humility and grace. You'll see something in him. This God is for me. He's with me. He loves me. I can carry on. I can keep going. One more step. I can follow Jesus in suffering. Now, if this sounds crazy and strange to you, And if it's appealing even in the least bit, I want to encourage you, it begins to be personal for you when you begin to admit to God, to confess to him that his ways are right and that you've been living in the wrong. It starts for you by confessing your sin, by trusting that God has done something to save you, not that you could ever earn, but out of his grace and his love for you. And reaching out and taking hold of that and saying, God, thank you for seeing me in all my mess and my filth and loving me anyway and making a way for me to be changed and made new. That's how it begins to become personal for you. The first thing we need is this DNA of the gospel in our bones. That's how we start to endure well. But if that's happening, there's a few more things that we can talk about. The other thing that we see in this psalm is that this was an old psalmist. An old faithful psalmist. So, Christ, let me exhort you. We need the testimony of older Christians in this room. We need you. We need you. If you've suffered, we need you. We need you to talk about the way that you've wrestled, that you've struggled, that you've trusted God in your suffering. Because I need the encouragement, and you need the encouragement. We need the testimony of older saints like this psalmist. Third, to endure well as a community, we need to dig the foundations deep into God in our present sufferings. We need to start taking refuge in him right now. So where are you going? Where are you continually running for refuge? To God or somewhere else? If it's somewhere else, you need to stop it. You need to repent and come and seek the Lord. Nothing will satisfy, nothing will build you up like taking refuge in him. One of the ways you can do this is to begin by keeping record, write out in a journal somewhere the things that God has done in your life, the things that you see him doing right now, this past year, these past several months. Take time to reflect and give him praise and glory for the way that he is at work in you and in this church. Number four, if we do these things, if we're empowered by the reality of God's love for us, in Jesus, then we will be the soil with the good and honest heart. We will be the one that bears fruit with patience over the course of our lives. Not with a simplistic, naive faith, but a mature and grounded faith with deep roots that brings glory to God in this city in this beautiful way. I want to end with a passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As you look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal.